many of you have already invited your one for August 13th? Let me just see a show of hands here. Good, I see some hands throughout the auditorium here. Just as a reminder, when you do invite your one, you can turn in that card, whether it be in the offering plate during the offering, or you can turn it in at our welcome desk. All right, so we're really hoping to have a great turnout on August 13th. Remember, this is not inviting your aunt, who is a believer, but goes to the church down the street. We're trying to invite people who don't have a church home that don't know Jesus. So I hope that you will join us in this effort on August 13th as we invite your one. Today we're going to finish up Paul's Thanksgiving hymn in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember last week we looked at verses 3 through 10. And today we're going to finish up and look at 11 through 14. Now I told you last week that Paul has made this into one long continuous sentence in the Greek. But because we English folks can't stand that, we've gone in and added, what's the word I'm looking for? Periods, thank you. And commas. And all these other forms of punctuation. Okay? But in the original Greek, it was one long continuous thought. That's why many think most likely it was a hymn sung by the early church. So we're going to be finishing up today verses 11 through 14. If you have your Bible with you, please turn there. It's also going to be on the screen as well. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now remember last week, verses 3 through 10, we looked at four spiritual blessings that apply to all believers in Jesus Christ. Those verses applied strictly to Believers in Jesus Christ. And as we get into 11 through 14, Paul switches up the way he uses the pronouns in this passage. Because in verse 11 and 12, anytime you see a you or an us, Paul is talking about Jews. And then in verse 13, he's talking about Gentiles. And then in verse 14, he's including everybody else all over again. So you have to pay very close attention to the way Paul uses the pronouns in this passage. Because last week, universally across the board, he was talking about all believers in Jesus Christ. But today, he gets a little bit more specific. There are four truths that I want you to take away today from this passage. The first is this, that the Jews were included. Now we talked last week about the concept of election. And how from the very beginning, God made a conscious decision to choose the Israelites. They were not the only nation. Abraham was not the only man alive at the time. So he made a conscious decision to do this. And I want to show you from Genesis 12 how God went about doing this. It's going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read it. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, 
so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot, who was his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. From Genesis 12, God had made the conscious decision that it would be through Abram that he would bless all the nations. Now, we know him as Abraham. We don't talk much about Abram because most of the stories are about him being Abraham. And in Genesis 17, there is a covenant that God makes between himself and the Israelites. And Genesis 17 is the story of that covenant. And we know that the sign of the covenant was circumcision. This is how the Israelites were set apart from everyone else. Paul himself, as a Jewish man, is well aware of the covenant relationship between God and the Jews. And these believers that are Jewish believers that he's writing to in verses 11 and 12 here are well aware of this covenant relationship. Now there's been a lot of debate over what Paul really thought about this covenant relationship between God and the Israelites. What was he thinking when he wrote Ephesians 1, 11, and 12 about this covenant relationship? Books, dissertations, scholars have debated what Paul was thinking about this topic. But we can all agree on this about the covenant. Four things. Number one, God did in fact choose Israel. Number two, he gave them the law. Number three, he expected them to obey the law. And when they didn't, there were consequences. And number four, every time there were consequences, God had to reestablish that covenant with the Israelites. The Jews were always a part of the plan of God to save mankind. But here's what I want you to realize. Jews today that do not believe in Jesus Christ are not somehow automatically in. We can fall prey to the thinking that the nation of Israel is in because we know from Genesis 12 that God saved the Israelites. That's not the case. Ethnic Jews do not somehow have an inside track to heaven. The same way that a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim would have an inside track to heaven. Jesus himself, a Jewish man, tells us in John 14, 6, you know it well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Everyone must make that confession. No one can get away from it. Jesus is the only way. And these Jews that Paul is talking to here, they were Jewish Christians. That means that they adhered to the principles of Judaism, but they also believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That is how we get eternal life. I know many of you in this room have had this conversation before with somebody. You're sharing your faith you're sharing stories about how you came to faith in Christ. And they say, well, I agree with what you're saying, but I think that 
as long as I am a good person, in the end, I'm going to be okay. We hear this all the time. As long as I do good, as long as I love other people, as long as I serve other people, whether I really believe in Jesus doesn't matter. It's all about being a good person. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Yeah, the entire room just raised their hand, okay? Here's the problem with that. Being good is a highly subjective term. My idea of what it means to be a good person and your idea of what it means to be a good person could be completely different. That's why when we dialogue with people, family members, neighbors, even people at church, when we start talking about this idea about being a good person, we want to make sure they realize in a loving way, in a gracious way, that we don't agree with that. Salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. It applies to the Jews, it applies to the Christians, it applies to the Hindus, and down the line. Secondly, what Paul shows us here is that salvation is ultimately about God. In verse 12, at the end of verse 12, he says that this would happen to the praise of his glory. What I want you to realize is, God didn't choose the Israelites because they were these physical specimens and that it could dominate all these other nations. He didn't choose them because they were head and shoulders above others. He strictly chose them out of his grace. And their job was to point other people back to him. Everyone in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ has their own story, has their own testimony of how God saved you, of how he transformed you. Some are simple. And some are these radical stories of God saving you from a life of destruction. And if you didn't find Christ, you might not have even lived. Every story of transformation in Christ is valid and important. So don't think, because your story isn't as grand as someone else's, that it's any less important. But here's the danger about our testimonies and about sharing the transformation that Christ has made in our lives. If we're not careful, we'll make it more about us and less about him. Every opportunity that you have to share the gospel, to tell your story, is an opportunity for you to point people to him. You see, we didn't redeem ourselves and then decide to follow God. God redeemed us. He did the work in our lives. And we need to be careful that we don't get deceived into thinking that it was our own personal discipline or our own conscientious decision to come to faith in Christ. No, God saved you. Salvation is about God. Let me show you how easily human beings can be deceived. In the summer of 1996, Ford Motor Company decided, we're going to come out with a new vehicle. This vehicle was called the Ford Expedition. And they said, we're going to devote half of our Michigan truck plant 
to building this expedition. They were going to sell them for $36,000. They only cost $24,000 to actually make, so they're making twelve grand profit. And they thought sales were going to be okay. They'd, they'd never ventured this way before, so they unleashed the expedition, and sales went through the roof. They had to completely devote the entire factory to pumping out these expeditions. That one truck plant in Michigan alone made over $11 billion in sales that year, almost as much as McDonald's made. So Ford got smart and said, you know what? This expedition's doing so well. Let's create a more souped-up version. So they created the Lincoln Navigator. Now, why? Why this vehicle? This was the first, as we know of now, sport utility vehicle. We just call them SUVs. And if you've ever stood at a light, and if you've been in an SUV, and somebody next to you is in a Toyota Camry or a Honda Civic, do you not have this incredibly prideful mentality? Look at that person down there in that Civic. I could run them over so fast. It's something about the SUV that put pride in our hearts. But you know what they've come to find through the years? See, when people bought the SUV, this is what they were thinking. They were thinking, it's bigger, it's faster, I'm going to be safer because the vehicle's bigger. There's more metal around me, everything's going to be fine. But you know what Consumer Reports have said, right? Over the years, what's one of the most dangerous vehicles that you can actually purchase? An SUV. It takes more time to slow down. They tip over faster. They have four-wheel drive, which causes people to go out in, into conditions that they normally otherwise wouldn't do. More fatalities happen year after year in an SUV than happen in a Honda Civic or a Toyota Camry. Bigger isn't always better. We are so easily deceived. It doesn't take much. But I want us to look at verse 12 as a reminder that it's all about to the praise of His glory. Salvation is all about God and how He saved us. And then I want you to realize that not only were the Jews included, but you were included. Now this is really important. Because in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Peter and James and Barnabas gather in Jerusalem. Okay, Paul has just finished his first missionary journey. Goes down to Cyprus, goes up to Perga, into Galatia, circles back through. That's his first missionary journey. And as he's out sharing the gospel with these people, Paul and Barnabas find out that the majority of the people making decisions to follow Christ are not Jews. And so now, the church in Jerusalem has to have a meeting about this. Well, what are we going to do? All these people all over the world want to hear about Jesus, but yet they don't believe the same things that we believe about what we can eat, how often we bathe, how we gather together and worship. So they have this big council. And you can read later in Acts 15 about it. And here's what the council decides. James and the other leaders make the decision that Paul and Barnabas, we want you to continue to go out 
and share the gospel. Even though, culturally speaking, these people are not like us. And it might mean that we have to give a little bit. But what's more important is the gospel being sent out. If Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter would have made the decision to keep the gospel only within the Jews. Let me tell you what would have happened. You and I would not be believers in Jesus Christ. Because if it would have stayed within the Jewish faith, and Paul and Barnabas were told, why don't you guys just go into Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and let's focus on discipling the other Jews. Making sure they realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Making sure that they realize that they can come into our fold and be okay. If they would have done that, I can assure you, maybe after 20, 30, 50 years, that would have been the end of Christianity. Because when you make it only within the group that is just like you, you quit being concerned about those around you. What I need you to understand is that if Paul and Barnabas do not go out to Rome and all these other places, Ephesus, if the gospel doesn't make it there, it's not going to make it to America, okay? How did you come to faith in Christ? Somebody shared it with you. We all know, right, that Christianity did not begin here. We're all under agreement with that. That means somebody had to bring it here. Which means, from the beginning, the plan was that you were included. Paul and Barnabas, even though they weren't actually thinking of you, they might as well have been thinking of you. Because they were willing to go out. And if you don't realize that you yourself are included in the plan, and if you forget that, you will not go out and share the gospel. Do not forget that somebody shared with you. Because if you forget that, you will not share with others. Now here's the statistics right now in America. We hear this all the time. What's the church doing in America? Dying. Declining. The rise of what they call the de-churched population. These are people that grew up in church and are leaving the church. So we have the rise of the de-churched. And then we have the rise of what they're calling the nuns. The segment of the population that has no religious affiliation at all. So these two groups are rising. And the church is going the opposite way. So the church is declining. In America. But yet, if you go to Africa, or if you go to Korea, or if you go to China, what are you seeing? God is growing like wildfire in these places. Statistics are telling us by 2030, China will have over 200 million Christians. Now, we just had a group two weeks ago get back from China. And I'm sure they could give you testimonies of how God is working mightily in China. 200 million believers in just 13 years from now. And there's theories and there's opinions about why the church in America doesn't seem to be doing well. I heard one just last week. There's a new theory out there. This man said that every time 
there has been a technological advancement, it has affected the church. And he gave three examples, all the way back in the first century with Paul, and the Romans created the roads. So he was able to get to all of these areas, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica. Why? Because the roads made easier access for him to get there. And then we move all the way up to the Protestant Reformation. What was just invented prior to the Protestant Reformation? The printing press. So for the first time, everyday people could get their hands on the Bible. So they're reading the Bible, and they're looking at what the Catholic Church is saying, and things aren't adding up. Enter Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Protestant Reformation. And now they're saying that the church is being affected by the internet, by social media. And this man's argument was, people aren't seeing the value in showing up to a service on Sunday morning when they can get good biblical teaching on YouTube or on other sites. Why show up and be a part of a body when I can get everything that I would normally get on a Sunday morning from the confines of my own home? Now, we're not going to unpack all the problems with his theory. But here's the reality of it. We can spit off any theory or opinion that we want, but at the end of the day, if you forget that somebody shared the gospel with you, you will not share it with others. And if you do not share it with others, guess what will happen to the church? It will continue to decline. The church in America will continue to decline. The churches in New Orleans will continue to decline. And this church will decline. That's why the Invite Your One emphasis is so important to us. It's not about the numbers, okay? Whether we have a thousand here on that day or whether we only have 10 to 15 new people, it's not the numbers. It's creating a culture of intentionality, reminding ourselves that when we are out in our workplace with our friends that Jesus is the reason we are there we want people to know him don't forget you were included and then lastly Paul shows us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee for all of us in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ. Some of your translations might even say the down payment. If you've ever bought a house or if you bought a car, you put down that large amount of money, the down payment. It's a guarantee to the dealership or to the institution that you're putting down this huge amount of money and that you're going to be good for it. And what Paul is telling us here is that when Jesus left, he left his spirit to remind us that the inheritance will be fully yours when you leave this earth. It's only the down payment. It's only the beginning. So if you've ever had intense moments of prayer or studying God's word or having a conversation with another believer about spiritual things and you feel the Holy Spirit moving in your life and you know it's Him working, if you've ever had that experience before, that is but a glimpse of what it will be like when we are reunited with Jesus in heaven. It's a fraction 
of the experience. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's the guarantee of the inheritance that will be rightfully yours when you pass. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma for over 40 years. Now, it's not called Burma anymore. It's called Myanmar. The name changed. He was there over 40 years. And in those 40 years, only 25 converts to Christianity. We look at that ratio. We think to ourselves, 40 years, he's a missionary, so literally his job is to share Jesus all the time. That's what missionaries do. We look at that number, we think, 25 in 40 years? He translated the Bible into the Burmese language. It took him 23 years to do it. Over the course of his ministry there, he lost two wives, six children, and 11 co-workers. His ministry was marked by frustration, depression, obstacle after obstacle. 25 converts in 40 years. Many of us in this room would look at that and say, that's a failure. Today, 6 million believers in Jesus Christ in Myanmar. And if you go and talk to these people, you know how many of them trace their spiritual heritage back to Adoniram Judson? Almost every single one of them. The numbers are not what matter. You could go your whole life and lead no one to Christ. But if you shared Christ, you've done your job. But if you're not sharing Christ, if you're not making him known, we're being disobedient to the calling that God has placed on our lives. So the Holy Spirit is the down payment. Now this is not a text about assurance of salvation, okay? But I want you to realize something. Here's how the Holy Spirit works. He convicts us of sin. He speaks to us as we read God's word. He brings people to our mind as we're praying. He leads us. He guides us. If you're not experiencing those characteristics of the Spirit working in your life, it's not a guarantee that you're not a believer by any means. But it's an indication that we need to get on our knees and figure out why is the Spirit seem to not be working in my life. You know, when Paul was struck blind heading to Damascus, it would have been really easy for God to say, Paul... I'm going to use you to go to the Jews. He was a Jew. He knew the Jewish scriptures. Trained as a Pharisee. It would have been so much easier for God to send him to the people that he was like. But God said, you know what, Paul? That would be too easy for you. So I'm going to send you to the very people that you don't want to go to. 
the very people even that have nothing in common with you. He went to the people that were not easy to go to. Because when the Holy Spirit convicts you and grabs your heart and tells you to go somewhere, you do it. And you're obedient. So here's the challenge. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ in this room this morning, I beg of you to not forget that you were included in God's plan to proclaim the gospel to every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? God, we thank you so much for this Thanksgiving section of Paul's letter. God, we know that everything is about pointing praise, glory, and honor back to you. Just like in, in verse 14, when Paul says, it's all to the praise and glory and honor of God. That's where we are this morning. We want to give you praise, glory, and honor for everything that you've done. Everything that you've done in the life of this church, everything that you've done in our lives. God, help us to make it more about you and less about us. God, as we reflect, as we meditate, as we respond, help us to listen to your Spirit. Help us to be obedient to your Spirit. We ask all these things. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.